peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Today's training evolution, dogfighting, taking on the corporate media. The rules of engagement are as follows. Number one, don't fire unless fired upon. But when they fire, you fire back with overwhelming force. Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill. Number two, never ever back down from a fight. If I could complete the question, though. So you're going to give a speech or pass the question? Number three, don't accept their narrative. It's wrong. It's a fake narrative. I just disabused you of the narrative, and you don't care about the facts. It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Let's do the punk. That was a 2022 campaign ad for Ron DeSantis's gubernatorial re-election campaign, which he handily won on November 8th. The ad depicts Ron as a fighter jet pilot, wearing a flight suit, strapping into an aircraft, and taking to the skies. Meant to evoke the Top Gun Maverick character, the ad reveals something pretty interesting. Why is DeSantis cosplaying as an Air Force pilot? has an actual military background, including a tour with special operations in Fallujah, which he could be playing up instead. After all, Republican voters eat that shit up. It's not just the obfuscation in this ad, but overall, DeSantis is pretty tight-lipped about his actual military service. He made reference to it in his 2018 gubernatorial campaign, but just with the words, quote, Ron DeSantis, Iraq war veteran, in a TV ad mailers having photos of him in uniform and reference to it in some speeches that he gave. But without ever going into much detail about what he did, his re-election campaign is similarly vague about his military experience. As far as I could find, he's never elaborated in interviews or speeches. I think there's a reason for that, and not because he just spent his time bored behind a desk. Up until now, details of <coughs> service have been a mystery, but in this episode, you will hear new exclusive information about his role at Guantanamo Bay, with never-before-heard witness accounts of how he personally was complicit in war crimes. With these revelations, we can also learn a little more about his equally obscure role in the Iraq War. I'm your host, Mike Preisner, with you to explore the shadowy military past of Ron DeSantis, and why he likely doesn't want to talk about it, on today's episode of Eyes Left. Justified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Correct. I'm a hawk. I was a victim of arms myself to prevent 9 11 again. I planned. As president, I wanted to give myself the Congressional Medal of Honor, but they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me do it. I said, I'm going to give myself the Congressional I've always wanted that. We just 
DeSantis began his career at the Blue Blood Yale University, where he went as an undergrad and was a member of the fraternity Delta Kappa Epsilon. Among his frat brothers are George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Sidney Sowers, the first director of the CIA. He took a year off before going to graduate school to teach at a private boarding high school, where former students recall his pro-Confederacy lessons on the Civil War. I mention that only because it helps us understand his political views at the time he joined the armed forces. His military career would begin as a second-year law student at Harvard, when he was commissioned as an officer in the Navy as part of JAG or Judge Advocate General Corps, the military's legal system. This was in 2004, and lucky for DeSantis, who was frequently described as handsome, it just happened to be the year the JAG TV show was a big hit. For a couple of JAG lawyers, Lieutenants Rab and Austin are hot. Very funny. And we're talking hot on the trail kind of hot. This is not a court though. It's a battle zone. Sometimes hot-blooded. Sir, with all due respect, while DeSantis would never live the life of these fictionalized JAG officers, he would end up doing things in his career that would be TV-worthy, but more in the true crime genre rather than action-adventure. His first two years in the Navy fall under the painfully mundane. He was in charge of things like urinalysis administration, as in routine drug tests for other service members, as well as physical fitness programs and awards paperwork. But for someone with ambition, elite Ivy League training, and political alignment with the Bush administration, there was much more ahead than being a pencil pusher. In March 2006, DeSantis would get his big break, a deployment to the notorious prison Guantanamo Bay, until now, it seemed that this assignment was a fairly routine, low-level administrative job. But as we will uncover through this episode, the opposite was true. Now, DeSantis himself has never really said anything about his time at Guantanamo. He frequently mentioned it when he was in Congress, but mainly when he was advocating against the potential closure of the torture camp. In 2016, he wrote on Facebook, quote, I served at Guantanamo Bay. I know you do not want these terrorists released. Obama is putting his political agenda over the safety of Americans by wanting to close Gitmo and bring terrorists to our homeland, end quote. Basically saying, I've seen these animals firsthand. They don't deserve rights. He flexed his Gitmo experience to speak out in opposition anytime a detainee was released after being held without charge, including the prisoner swap that returned American POW Bo Bergdahl. But his references are always extremely vague. When he first ran for governor in 2018, local press tried to learn more about that deployment, with little luck. First, there were his military records provided by the Navy to the Florida Phoenix in 2018. These described DeSantis's role at Guantanamo as quite minimal administrative work, saying he was responsible for things like courtroom scheduling. But those 40 pages of documents were heavily redacted. When the Florida Phoenix followed up for clarification, a Navy spokesperson told them, quote, Unfortunately, the specific details about Mr. DeSantis's role are not available, end quote. More was learned that same year when the Tampa Bay Times interviewed several officers who served with him at Gitmo. They said one of his responsibilities there as a JAG lawyer was to, quote, advocate for the fair and humane treatment of the detainees to ensure the U.S. military complied with the law, end quote. 
Ron's supervisor, Captain Patrick McCarthy, went on to clarify DeSantis was, quote, charged with ensuring the detainees received rights afforded to them under the common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention, end quote. Now, common Article 3 applies to rights for rebel fighters who are not part of a standing army like Al-Qaeda. I'll quote from the international law. Quote, the following acts are and shall remain prohibited at any time and in any place whatsoever. Cruel treatment and torture, outrages upon personal dignity, in particular, humiliating and degrading treatment, end quote. Now, when I read this, I thought to myself, something is obviously off. 2006, when DeSantis was there, was the height of the Bush torture program at Gitmo. Could Ron DeSantis, the far-right officer who just two years prior was teaching high schoolers to sympathize with the slaveocracy and uh, today speaks at events for anti-Muslim hate groups, could someone like him actually have been some kind of protector of detainee human rights, and at a time when illegal torture was actually the policy at the torture camp? Until now, nothing was really known about what DeSantis did for the 10 months he was at the island prison, other than those statements from former colleagues. I knew there had to be more to the story, so on November 17th, I called Mansour Adaifi, known to DeSantis as Detainee 441. Mansour, sold to the U.S. by Afghan warlords after 9-11, was a totally innocent teenager held at Guantanamo Bay from 2002 until 2016, so he has a robust knowledge of life and torture at Gitmo. He told me that not only was DeSantis there for what he called the worst year of his entire imprisonment, but DeSantis was a notorious figure who didn't just know about but observed and participated in illegal acts of torture and in fact seemed to take great pleasure in their suffering. He reveals that the job of DeSantis was not to ensure human rights were respected, but to ensure that they were violated to the worst degree. Just a warning, the following interview contains some graphic descriptions of torture. You know, as you know, Guantanamo, uh, Mike, it was created out of the legal soul, out of the legal system, out of the humanity, because torture was the was the mechanism of Guantanamo, torture, abuse, and experimenting on prisoners at Guantanamo. Uh, we went to hang a massive hunger strike in 2005. I was like over 500 prisoners participated in the hunger strike. And at that time, the only way to calm us down were they told us, okay, we're going to talk to listen to your need. We thought, we believed them that they would negotiate and talk to us. And we told them that's what we need, you know. But it was a trap, basically. It was a trap. I mean, everything upside down. So we went again on hunger cycle also on force feeding. You know, it was really, it was torture. We were bleeding all the time. And I saw a fucking handsome person who was coming. He said, I'm here to ensure that you're treating humanely. And we said, okay, this is our demand. You know, we were not asking for much, you know. At the beginning, he was just... It was Ron DeSantis. Yes, exactly, the person. He said, I'm here to ensure you're being treated humanely. Yes, exactly. And if you have any, if you have any uh, problems, if you have any concerns, if you have, just talk to me. And you know what? We, 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 we were drowning in that place. I'm like, oh, this is cool. That person actually uh, writing something. He will raise the concerns. But it was a piece of the game. What they, what they were doing, they were, they were looking what hurt you more to use against you. By the end of 2005, 2006, when he was there, one of the worst time at Guantanamo, literally. You know, the group who was in the administration, the aggregators, the guards, you know, the administration, all of them were the worst. And they cracked in us so hard. When they came to break our hunger strike, we went again and then first A team came to us, a general, the head of the team, he was a general, and he said, we were in hunger strike, he said, 
the first day, he said, I am here, I have a job, I was sent here to break your fucking hunger strike. I do not care why you're here, I don't care if you, who you are, my job, sir, here to, to make you eat. Today we are talking, tomorrow there will be no, no talking. The second day, I swear by my God, Mike, they brought, you know, piles of insure and they start force-feeding us over and over again. For those who don't know, Insure is a thick, milky, nutritional shake mainly marketed on daytime television to elderly people. I've had them, and they are very hard to drink. Yes, and uh, Ron DeSantis was there watching us. We were crying, screaming. We were tied to the feeding chair, and that guy, he was watching that, he was laughing this. When they used to feed us, because we, you can't, that, that, our stomach cannot hold this amount of insure. They used to pour insure one can after another, one can after another. So when he approached me, I said, this is the way we are treated. He said, you should start to eat. I threw up in his face, literally on his face. Ron DeSantis. And his face, yeah. Mansoor vomiting on DeSantis's face in a desperate cry for help was well-deserved. The JAG lawyer would have been well aware at the time that this was indeed a violation of international law, in particular, Common Article 3, which we reviewed earlier. There's no question that it was torture, and the UN Human Rights Commission further clarified that it regarded the force feeding at Guantanamo Bay as a form of torture. The World Medical Association also specifically prohibited force feeding in its declaration of Tokyo in 1975. They used to, you know, restrain us in the in the, the feeding chair, which like, you know, like eight point, they tied our, our heads, our shoulder, our, our wrist, our thighs, and our legs. And they came, and the, what really fixed you, they call it uh, French 17 or something, the old nose. And they keep doing this over and over again, and they put some kind of um, in the in the feeding liquid, with like we shit in ourselves all the time. Then we would be moved to solitary confinement, really cold cells. If we throw up, then like we used to, we used to get to like five times a day. It's not wasn't feeding, it just. It was torture, so we couldn't handle it for five or, or, or five days. We couldn't because five times a day, you you can't you 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 cannot possibly handle it because they just kept pouring the insure. And in one week, they break all the hunger strikers. In one week, totally, it was a mission. And he was there. All of them were was watching the the colonel, officers, you know, doctors, nurses, and not just that. They used to also beat us. And if we scream or pain bleeding came out of our nose and mouth. They were like, eat. The only word they told you, eat, eat, eat. You know, we were beating all day long, all day. There's a team. What, whatever you do, they just beat you. Pepper spray, beat, uh, beating, sleep deprivation, that continued for three months. And he was there. Because at the beginning, he told us that he was there to ensure we are treated humanely. And if you have concern or issues, he will take it. But... He's one of the people who actually survived the torture, the abuse, the beating all the time at the Guantanamo. So Ron DeSantis, he wasn't just there as like a lawyer that you could go to. He was actually supervising torture, beatings, and he was supervising these force feedings of you and others. Ron DeSantis was there all the time because his job to walk around and talk to prisoners on the camp, that was a job because the court, like, I am 13 years they are being taken humanely. I'm like, I'm telling Americans, if this, if this guy, if this, if this is humanity, this guy is torture, is a criminal. So when someone comes to talk to us, like, try one, try to help you, and we were complaining, you know, because we thought, okay, that's my work. Then when, when we saw him there, I told her when he came to approach me when I was first feeding, like, asked us to eat, 
is it better to eat? And he was laughing, so I went like, I guess I threw up in his face now. He was there to ensure we were treating uh, humanely. And you, you say that while Ron DeSantis was observing you being, you were strapped to a chair, they were pouring can after can of Insure down a tube through your nose, you were obviously in distress, right? At the time, it was obvious to Ron DeSantis that you were in pain. And you say that he was actually laughing during this procedure? Yes, I mean, like, they were asking us to eat because they, they took our hand to strike as, as, it, as a challenge that, and they went to break it because when, when he was there, they were looking at us and laughing because also we were shitting in ourselves. And they were, he was laughing because when it like, when I was like screaming and yelling because when, when, when your stomach full of insure, you, you couldn't breathe and you throw up at the same time. Also, there was a bleeding coming off of my nose because the, the tube they brought really thick tube. It's not like the real one. At the beginning, they brought a small one, then they brought a really big one, had like a piece of metal in the end. It was hurt like hell. And I was screaming, like, when I was, I was screaming, I look at him, and he was actually smiling, like, as someone who enjoyed it. When he come close, I just throw up in his, in, in his face because he was throwing up all the way. And I get punished. They took my clothes after, after they, yeah, it was, this is the memory of this person. When I shared my, my uh, his, uh, photo with the brothers, we have WhatsApp group from our former one-time prisoners. And I all of the like start cursing him, he's one of the worst people. You know, one of the things that hurt us when someone can tell you that I'm here to help you. I'm here to ensure that you treat humanely. And when he turned against us, when he turned not against us, when he turned his face, his true face, it was shocked to us all when someone because he used to talk to the prisoners. He has like a notebook and would ask the prisoners and you have any problems, how we can help you, how the guards treated you. And I'm like, wow, thanks. And everything we told him were turned against us. So you're saying that DeSantis initially, because he presented himself as the lawyer whose job it was to ensure you're being treated humanely, then you and other detainees told him the things that were the hardest for you to deal with, the things that you felt needed to change. And then instead of actually making sure those things changed and that your human rights are respected, he then basically like was gathering intelligence to then tell the prison camp and the interrogators what it was that was impacting you most so they could do it more to you. Exactly, that would happen there because the things we used to tell them, it turned against us, you know? I remember when he was talking about the noise at the night, when I'm talking about like the the vacuums, the directors, the fans, and everything. And they brought, they brought more and more stuff. You told DeSantis, that was one of your complaints to DeSantis, is that how they were sleep depriving you by causing so much intentional noise throughout the night. You told DeSantis this, and then they increased the noise? They increased the noise, and you know, also when, oh, the, the food, for example, with brother two used to tell him, okay, please, uh, we don't eat meat because we want to stress this halal or not. What the guard did after that, they used to mix all the food with meat so that you, that you cannot eat. And that's another thing that you told DeSantis was a problem and then it, they did it again. It's not just that. Also, the medicine, clothing, treatment, sleeping, you know, the desecration for uh, the uh, Quran. You know, everything we talked to him become multiple because he, when I talked about it, he said he was looking at them that, you know, what hurt you more? Because if you don't tell them nothing, they need to find a way to hurt you, the thing that affects you more. So, like, and we, after that, we knew who, who he is, basically. And, and, and when, we're, when we're on force feeding and uh, torture, he was laughing. You know, they were, they were smiling. And 
you know, like looking at us as like, as nothing, as trash. That's incredible. So if officially his job was to uh, ensure human rights of detainees, but really in reality what he did was exploit your trust in him for that brief moment to then use against you all the human rights violations that were impacting you the most. And so he actually helped increase the torture on you and increase the pain and suffering on you under the guise of he was there to help. And so to wrap up, you told me there was a resistance tactic there of splashing camp administrators, as it was called, which was splashing them with your own feces. But you didn't use this tactic often and reserved it only for the most hated torturers there, the worst of the worst. And uh, you told me earlier that DeSantis was one of those people who got splashed. Yes, only the worst of the worst, basically. Even the administration knew that we are not going to this like this. Not even get, get splashed, no. So DeSantis got the, the, the badge of shame. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> this conversation with Mansour reveals previously unreported details of Ron DeSantis's opaque role at Guantanamo. While I'm sure a lot of people out there will be happy to learn he has been hit with spit, vomit, and human fecal matter by the people he was hurting, I want to review some of the most important revelations. Ron's position was not some routine one. He didn't just rotate in and take over for some other low-level officer. Until then, no JAG officer had been assigned to such a position. He was brought in during a crisis. The mass protest of around 500 detainees in the form of a hunger strike was a major problem for the prison administrators, and especially for the Bush administration, which was in a legal and political hot seat for the torture camp and the protest. So they brought in a collection of new ruthless individuals to break the strike. Ron DeSantis was one of them. The official job, which I previously referenced, where his superiors described him as the human rights representative for detainees, was actually meant to defeat the hunger strikers, and as you heard, not by actually conforming the conditions to international law, but an undercover assignment for DeSantis to learn the weak points of the protesters and tighten the screws on them. It would be bad enough had DeSantis done these things as an interrogator or as a prison guard, but it makes it just so much more insidious that he was the attorney officially tasked with ensuring human rights. Mansour's description of the DeSantis era being by far the worst period of his entire detainment at Guantanamo is really saying a lot, given it is the most notorious torture camp in the world. In addition to all the brutal torture we know was happening on DeSantis's watch, he was also there for a very disturbing incident. On June 9th, 2006, three detainees, all leaders in the hunger strike, were found dead in their respective cells. Each was found hanging by the neck, hands and feet bound, with a piece of cloth shoved down their throat. Their bodies were sent home with all their organs and parts of the neck removed so that no autopsies could be performed. Officials ruled the death suicides, but Staff Sergeant Joseph Hickman, a prison guard who was on duty at the time, insists the men were actually tortured to death in a book he published in 2015. You can only wonder how much DeSantis knew about this incident. We know that DeSantis's tour in Guantanamo was one where he worked to not only cover up violations of international law, but was a gleeful participant in the war crimes. His joy in the face of one of the most grotesque and dehumanizing scenarios I've ever heard of, I think, is something that should haunt him for the rest of his political career. But his military story is not over. DeSantis must have impressed his superiors at the torture camp and proven he was just the kind of ethically compromised lawyer they needed, because he went straight from one big assignment to another. The same year DeSantis left Cuba, he was sent to Iraq. 
like with Guantanamo, DeSantis makes passing reference to this in some speeches and campaign ads, but with the same murkiness about what he actually did. I met Governor DeSantis in 2009 when he was on active duty. He was a Navy commissioned officer and served in Iraq. When you're advising SEAL Team 1, you're making life and death decisions every day. And as someone who has served side by side with him, he is selfless and he will do what is in your best interest, not his best interest. The Navy's core values are honor, courage, and commitment. And Governor DeSantis embodied those core values on active duty, and he embodies them every day as the governor of our state. Governor DeSantis is a true servant leader. Is this vagueness because DeSantis did nothing interesting on his deployment, or for the same reason he's so quiet about Guantanamo? That if he talked about what he really did, he'd be implicating himself in some crimes. Let's see what we can glean from the details we do have. DeSantis wasn't just sent anywhere in Iraq, nor with any old unit. DeSantis was assigned to the epicenter of the anti-occupation resistance, Fallujah. Not with conventional forces, but special operations who, as we'll discuss, do some pretty shady stuff. And Ron got quite the promotion for this gig. While at Gitmo, he had superiors in his JAG office. In Fallujah, he was the sole legal oversight for the entire Special Operations Command Force in the area. First, as I said, DeSantis gets to Iraq in 2007. This is the height of Bush's troop surge and the height of U.S. casualties. That year was the deadliest for U.S. troops, with nearly 1,000 killed in that year alone. With the surge being prompted by occupation forces facing either embarrassing defeat or endless quagmire, there was enormous pressure on American commanders to turn the tide, and an understanding that they needed to do so by any means necessary. It is well documented that conventional combat forces were told to take the gloves off like never before. It is the time of the 2007 Baghdad airstrike revealed in the collateral murder video. Death, of course, was not just rained down from the sky, but infantrymen on the ground in that same video recall that they were told their mission was to, quote, out-terrorize the terrorists through a variety of illegal tactics, including indiscriminate gunfire in all directions in civilian areas in response to IED attacks. But DeSantis wasn't with a regular conventional unit. He was assigned to the Special Operations Task Force, which commanded both Navy SEALs and Army Special Forces, who are notorious for extra-legal acts of unconventional warfare at all times, let alone during the deadliest year of the Iraq War. DeSantis was the senior legal advisor to the top commander of this task force in the region, which included Fallujah and the Euphrates River Valley, meaning anything that special ops were doing in that area Ron was responsible for the legal oversight as the top and only lawyer. Officially, his job was, according to his commander, quote, ensure the missions of Navy SEALs and Army Green Berets were planned according to the rule of law and that captured detainees were humanely treated, including compliance with both U.S. military law and the Geneva Convention, end quote. Now, we've already explored what Ron's oversight could mean for treatment of detainees, interrogations in the field by SEALs and Special Forces. I mean, you can just use your imagination there, but have the potential to be even worse than that at Kitmo. But DeSantis was also responsible for helping the commander, Navy SEAL Captain Dane Thorlifson, actually plan Special Operations missions in accordance with the law. But to remind you of something I said earlier, DeSantis was the sole legal oversight for this task force. There were no other lawyers. Ron, and only Ron, was responsible for keeping these guys in line with international law. And does Ron seem like the kind of guy who would want to keep them in line? And after what we know he did at Gitmo, and especially in the face of potentially losing the war. 
Was his job in both places really to ensure the rule of law and the human rights of detainees, or was that just the official language, but in practice, his job was actually to cover up war crimes? In other words, was he there to do the same thing he did at Gitmo? I talked about this with Sergeant First Class Sauter Morris. Morris just retired this year after 20 years in the Army, which included two tours as an infantryman in Iraq and Afghanistan. Based on my experience, which, uh, you know, I was a support guy prior MI, as you and I both were when we met, and then uh, I was an infantry guy for five years, and then I was medically reclassed to IT, and after I was put in the IT world, I uh, worked closely within special operations for the majority of the rest of my career. Working in that realm and at the higher echelons of that, my knowledge of what the JAG officers do is they're, you know, the legal advisors to the senior commanders there on the ground or wherever, and they just kind of advise in terms of when it comes to military operations, like specifically like DeSantis, who is on the ground in Iraq, you know, their job is just to advise their commanders when it comes to planning and executing operations and that stuff in accordance with, you know, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the Army's or military's legal system, and then, of course, in accordance with local laws and, you know, any other legal ramifications they could get, you know, hemmed up in. But at the same time, like, there's a conflict of interest there. Like, they work for that commander. So the commanders have their own intentions, their own, you know, ideas of how things should operate. And a lot of times, yeah, like, that's kind of the JAG officer's, you know, job is to find the way to legally make things happen or to, I guess, like, what they always say is, like, how to, how to get to yes, <laughs> you know? So right. I definitely would imagine, especially back then, like, being a young, you know, officer, like, you know, he was probably in that same position to, you know, make sure that, you know, anything that did maybe go wrong in a mission or, you know, anything that was kind of questionable, like how to kind of best proceed. And a lot of times, like, you know, the default for that is, like, keep American service members, like, out of trouble. A lot of that job is to actually provide top cover for those commanders and the subordinates who, you know, sometimes are not necessarily doing most legal or morally upstanding things. And especially, too, like, being an outsider like that, you know, like, right. anybody that's not, like, special operations in and of itself, you know, like, any of their support people, like, there's a certain, you get kind of drawn into it, you know, a little bit of, like, sort, sort of that, you know, there's that hero worship of military people from, like, the majority of America, and then even within the right. military, it's like, ooh, special operations, or SEALs, right. or Green Berets, you know, it's like, you don't want to be the outsider within that tight knit of an organization, right? Like, you kind of have to toe the line and, you know, or you don't have to, but, you know, definitely it makes life a little harder if you're kind of that outs outside guy. Yeah, and we do know his commander, the SEAL commander, that he was responsible for working directly with and, you know, advising all this. He really likes DeSantis and says nothing but great things about him, so I think that would indicate that uh, he 
you know, didn't challenge him in any significant way that would make him be like, you know, fuck this uh, lawyer guy. Um, so right, right. Done, done exactly what the commander wanted. And, you know, I think, um, I think in general, like, you know, Geneva Convention stuff, I mean, I'm just thinking back to even, like, basic training and after. It, there's always this, like, undermining of it and the sense of, like, um, officially, <laughs> this is what you're supposed to do. But if you just say you're doing this, technically you're not breaking Geneva Convention. You know, like, the whole, I think the most famous thing is, like, like 50 caliber machine guns and how they're not supposed to be anti-personnel weapons and so if you're technically you're aiming at someone's a canteen then you're not you're aiming at equipment you're not aiming at people that always stuck me is like okay i mean one of the first things we're learning is how to um avoid prosecution uh for war crimes it was just like i feel like that culture is kind of so widespread that in conventional forces and so you have to imagine in the special operations they're looked at as things not that there's this like ethical duty to uphold but you know just guidelines with which you have to like operate around officially yeah sure and and of course too you know like it's all you know embroidered in secrecy and behind the, the eyes of like top secret and all that stuff so it's like it's a little more cloudy back there on that side of things as yes. to what exactly you're doing right and so I think the we've kind of established that what DeSantis's like expectation would be for him as the Jack guy there is not to be the guy that's like whipping people in the shape, but to being the guy that's giving top cover, as you said. Special operations in general, like their kind of entire success kind of rests on the fact that they are operating in a shadowy area of the law in a lot of ways. I mean, they're a secret, you know, they're secret units doing secret missions, but I think there's a little bit of a dependence that to be able to to bend international law to the things that they need to do in general as, like, a, an organization, let alone in, you know, the deadliest time of the Iraq War. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, like, I mean, yeah, any kind of other operations that are going on that aren't, you know, as well known or, you know, even officially recognized, you know, like that gray areas where they're supposed to operate in. Yeah, and so DeSantis's job, you know, wasn't just to be a legal advisor for so-called legal advisor for these actual missions, but also treatment of detainees. And we've already explored in this episode how he did or did not do that job at Guantanamo Bay. And a lot it would almost seem like there was would be more oversight and scrutiny at Guantanamo Bay for interrogations than in the field with special operations in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? It almost seems like if oh, you yeah. are if you are being if you're gonna be interrogated, you would probably want to be interrogated more at Guantanamo where there are like more lawyers and some cameras and whatever then actually be interrogated after being picked up in your house and put on a Blackhawk and brought to a field in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and that's the thing. It's like, there's no legal oversight. You know, they obviously have the protocols and they're told what is legal and what isn't legal. But again, it comes down to what gets results, what gets, you know what makes you part of that team, what makes you part of that community, right? Is like, you know, kind of being willing to skirt or subvert, you know, some legal actions. For me, the most underreported aspect of DeSantis' military career is that it isn't over yet. As far as I can tell, he is still an officer in the Navy Reserves. 
After returning from Iraq in 2008, his next JAG assignment was being assigned to the Department of Justice in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Florida. He completed his active duty contract in 2010 and the same year transferred to the Navy Reserves. And as of this year, 2022, he's still in the Navy Reserves. So we may have another Tulsi Gabbard on our hands, a right-wing culture warrior rising through the political ranks while simultaneously rising through the military ranks, indicative of the type of people who crave power with some unnerving implications about politicians who exist in both the civilian and military worlds. We know from history, deep ties to the military establishment make any far-right demagogue all the more dangerous. Ron DeSantis has already become an ideological leader on the right for hyping up culture war issues like critical race theory and legislating heavily against abortion, LGBTQ rights, and COVID restrictions as governor. Whatever happens with the 2024 election, DeSantis is here to stay as a national political figure for a while. Now that we know, and there are so many witnesses to attest to this, that he covered up and participated in illegal torture, not as an interrogator, but as an attorney who was duty-bound to uphold human rights law. This should be an issue that haunts him just like it did the Bush administration. If you recall, it was the scandal at Guantanamo which helped propel Obama to the presidency on a promise to close the camp altogether. Ironically, Ron DeSantis is today working with the same forces who helped cover it up. His closest collaborator in the so-called anti-woke messiah rebrand, which he began in 2020, is Christopher Rufo. Rufo is from the Heritage Foundation, a neoconservative think tank, which not only helped Bush 1 and Bush 2 mastermind their respective Iraq wars, but was a leading defender of Bush's torture program at the time DeSantis was watching people be gruesomely force-fed. And while we don't know exactly what he did in Iraq, there are probably some witnesses out there who do, or hopefully found soon as well. It would be really great to see him pressed on this scandalous past by journalists as he continues to rise into the national spotlight. If he does want to be president, isn't it relevant that he covered up and participated in war crimes? And shouldn't those disturbing details about his character, which you heard about today, matter when it's someone who already controls an entire state and may one day control the entire country? The Ronald has so far tried to keep this military past in the shadows with just enough hazy reference to be able to check that coveted box of being a veteran with overseas experience. Now that we have shed some light to his closet, let's hope the light stays on.